Well, if you would, go ahead and turn into your Bibles to Ephesians. This morning, we'll continue our track in Ephesians, chapter 1 and verse 4. Let me go ahead and read that to you, and so you can kind of have that in your mind as I give a few opening statements. Ephesians 1, 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So it's been a couple weeks since we were in Ephesians last, and of course we're going through the book verse by verse and chapter by chapter, and uh, we've talked about the fact that the book of Ephesians really is a treasure house for the believer. Uh, if you would allow me this morning, I want to refresh your memory since, again, it has been a few weeks as we kind of open up again the rich doctrines found in this epistle by the Apostle Paul. So previously in verse 3, which says, Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We spoke of how Paul begins with praises to God, even before he tells us what any of these blessings are. We talked about the fact that God deserves to be praised simply because he is God. He's the blessed one. And so the Apostle Paul in verse 3 puts for, uh, bursts forth with this sort of eulogy of praise. The blessings begin with God. We talked about that, and specifically God the Father. He's the one who blesses us with every spiritual blessing. And we'll do well to remember that everything that starts starts with God as we approach our text for this morning in just a few minutes. Um, a couple weeks ago when we opened up verse 3, we spent quite a bit of time considering just the praiseworthiness of God, of who He is, of God the Father and His majesty, His grandeur, His vastness, and His magnificence. You see, it's very easy to praise God for what we think we get from Him, but in reality, we praise God because He deserves to be praised. And these things we spoke about the fact that they're so far above us and our thinking. How could we ever come to a full understanding of just the majesty of God? And yet we should consider all of these noble qualities of God and praise Him for those things. From there, we sort of began the journey into the treasure box of the Bible, which we have stated is the book of Ephesians, and we talked about what the verse says is the fact that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in every heavenly places. We spoke a little bit about what those blessings were and the fact that just considering God has given us every spiritual blessing is really enough to kind of boggle the human mind. How could we as sinful human beings be the subjects of such great wealth, such great treasure? How could we as sinners who have at once defied the living God be the recipients of every spiritual blessing. We spoke a little bit about that. We spoke a little of how God, who is the blessed one, then turns around and blesses us, his children, simply because he loves us and desires to do that. We also talked about not only does he bless us, but it goes much further than just a single blessing. We're told that we have every blessing. And 
Every single word in Scripture is important. It's not just that He's given us enough for some time, but He's given us enough for all times. It's not just that He gives us some of the blessings He could give us. No, Paul says that He's given us every spiritual blessing, and that's very important. It's such an extraordinary statement that it's worth being reminded of this morning. If you are a child of God, God has given you everything that you need for life and for practice and to be faithful and for good works that he's called you to. Not just some of what you need, but all of what you need. That brings us to what we've been talking about for weeks, even in the Wednesday night Bible studies. The Bible is wholly sufficient. He's given us everything that we need. We think of, with such blessings, what Christian could really lack in the world. And we sort of talked about that, to which we answered the only one who lacks as a believer in this world is not the one who doesn't have spiritual blessings, but the one who does very little with what God's given him. Because we're quite plainly told he's given us everything that we need. The Christian who lacks in this world lacks not because he's without provision, but because he makes very little use of the provision God's given him. Just imagine, if you will, a small story. Think of a destitute man who lives far in the country. He's a very poor man, perhaps a very poor Farmer, And imagine that if one day a man knocks on his door and says, Sir, I believe you have an uncle named John. Is that correct? The man replies, Well, yes, that's true, but I've never met him and I know nothing of him and he lives very far away. Poor man would reply. And so the visitor would say, Well, sir, I must inform you that your uncle has passed away and he's left, he's left his estate to you, the only living heir. He was a very wealthy man, and he's left everything to you, which is quite a large sum. Here's the information you need. Simply contact the number, and they'll help you do everything that needs to be done. Well, after the gentleman leaves, the poor man hurries off to his job in his worry and caught up in the stresses of the world and concern for what he'll eat next and how he may pay his next bill, and he forgets that a vast amount of wealth has just become at his disposal. Perhaps the man didn't understand what a large sum meant, or maybe he didn't quite believe that it could be true because he didn't know the man. Whatever the reason, he never calls the number, and he continues on the rest of his days poor and lacking. Well, it seems a bit of an absurd tale, and yet that's the tale of many Christians today. We spoke about that the last time we were in Ephesians when we spoke about the very fact that so many Christians, although they've been given everything needed by God, never avail themselves of that. So this kind of brings us to our text this morning. If you haven't already gotten to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, you can go ahead and do that now. I want to put your eyes on verse 4. It says this, Just as He chose us in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So clearly we see that this verse flows out of verse 3. In fact, if you'll remember, we talked about 
the fact that verses 1 through about 14 are all one very long sentence in which the Apostle Paul hardly took a breath. So we talked about the fact that it can be kind of dissected into three different parts, and we're going to focus just on the very first part of that very long sentence this morning. The, the first section, and really if you break it up into three parts, the first couple verses really speak of what God the Father has done. Verses 7 through 12 is the work of the Son, and then towards the end of this one sentence, 12 through 14, it speaks of the work of the Holy Spirit. But here in verses 4 through 6, the apostle begins with the work of the Father. This is particularly important for us, and it's specifically worth noting as we discuss what really is a truly great doctrine. And unfortunately, it's a doctrine that many reject today, and we're going to talk about the doctrine of election because it's brought up before us in this passage. The apostle here tells us the very reason why we receive these spiritual blessings. And so he's told us that we're to praise God. He starts with that. Then he says that this God who is worthy of praise has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. And now he's going to tell us just why it is you're a recipient of those blessings. And that's very simply at the first of that passage just as he chose us. I don't think there's really any greater three words in Scripture once you come to understand what it means than those three words, he chose us. Paul shows us here, and of course, we understand that this isn't merely the Apostle Paul, right? We'll hear this argument, well, that was just the opinion of the Apostle Paul. No, we understand that it's the Apostle Paul speaking with the unction of the Holy Spirit, that this is God speaking through Paul, telling us that our blessings are solely and wholly the result of an action of who? God, and not of ourselves. Really, this is a message that we should rejoice in, and we'll come to see why as we move along. But let me just ask, have you ever really just personally wondered why is it that you became a Christian and someone that you know hasn't? Have you ever thought about that? Why is it that maybe you grew up in a family and you became a Christian and your sibling didn't? Or you became a Christian and your best friend didn't? Have you ever wondered why you responded to God in a way that others around you haven't? Have you ever thought how is it that at one stage you went from not caring, not thinking, not being concerned about the things of God to now being a faithful follower of Christ? Have you ever thought about that? Why? Why? Or how is it that you went from the God of your parents to embracing God's truth on your own? I mean, these are all good questions to ask. Another good question is, what is it that causes that defining moment when a person becomes a Christian? Is it because they responded at a rally? Is it because they had some emotional feeling and 
in the middle of their living room during a song and they just chose the right thing? Is, is that the reason? Well, I told you earlier that this doctrine of election is a difficult one for many people. And to be sure, when you ask these types of questions, you get all kind of answers. And many of them aren't biblical answers. We misunderstand what has happened to us when we come to know Christ. I also want to just say that this is not a doctrine, and understand that in our circles we embrace this doctrine, and we believe the doctrine of election, and we value the doctrine of election, but this is a grand doctrine, and it is a doctrine that we should approach not with any kind of arrogance or pride, but one with great humility. Many people would answer those questions we just asked by saying that that defining moment is when a person trusts in Christ. That sounds good, right? How is it that you came to know Christ when the one beside you didn't? How is it that you became to trust Christ when your sister, your brother, or your father, your mother didn't? Many would respond, well, it's because you put your trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. And that sounds very good, but there are two problems with that statement. The first is that that statement places the action on you. You made the right choice. You responded. And so if that's true, then who's really responsible for the initiation of your salvation? You are. I don't think any Christian would be really comfortable saying that, although that's what they say when they respond that way. So the action is placed on the person. In other words, the man is primarily his, the, the beginning force of his salvation. So that's one problem. The second problem is that the Apostle Paul here makes a conflicting statement. And he doesn't start even with Jesus Christ. He starts with God the Father. Well, that's very interesting. Have you ever thought about that? Surely our salvation is made possible because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, but who sent Jesus Christ? Well, it was the will of the Father. And so the apostle here starts with the Father, just as he, he, he being God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So man's not the starting point. Your faith isn't the starting point. In fact, you had nothing to do with it in all reality because he chose you before, well, everything and anything that existed. This is a magnificent doctrine. He chose you before anything that exists was in existence. It says, before the foundation of the world. And so if that's true, then how can your decision, your choice, be what causes you to have faith? Well, those two things don't line up very well. This is why the Christian comes to Christ, because God has called him first, and then he gives him what he needs to respond. He regenerates him. And so God elects man. 
And he did so before the very foundation of the word. And this is the testimony, by the way, of the whole Bible. This one passage is not isolated from what's true in all of Scripture. If you would, go ahead and quickly turn with me to the very first book of your Bible, and I'll prove it to you, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. What's it say? In the beginning, in the beginning what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Would you notice here that it speaks of the existence of God before the beginning, right? In the beginning, God, God preceded the very beginning. And so the testimony of the whole Bible is that everything that starts, starts with God and your salvation, my salvation is no exception to that. It doesn't start with man's good response. It starts with God's grace in allowing us to then respond. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So in other words, God was there before the beginning came. And when it came into being, into being it did so because God ordained it to be. And you can go through and just read the first few chapters of Genesis and you see everything that was made was made for God and you see that he was there with the Holy Spirit and with Christ as well and they made everything that they made they made and they said it was good and they made man and they said it was very good and then you find that man had a problem and the problem was sin and we get to our passage later on and we've seen it so many times by the time you get from Genesis to Ephesians and he just reminds us here again that the beginning of our salvation, the beginning of our being the recipients of God's blessing is not our choice, but it's God. The Bible always starts with God the Father, and so that's the very same place we have to start. Now look, we need to recognize that although this is the testimony of Scripture, this is a difficult doctrine. It's a hard statement for man to grasp. We're not just talking about some very simple doctrine. We're talking about something that God, an infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful God, determined from the beginning of everything that we are trying to grasp. And so we have to realize that in our humanity, we just simply will never fully understand everything about God, and so we need to be gracious when we speak of this doctrine, but we can't ignore it. The passage forces us, the text forces us to simply see that it's true. And so this is true for the Christian. He is Christian, not because he's believed on Christ first, but because God chose him first to believe in Christ, and that order matters. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones is right when he says this. He says, the Bible is ultimately the revelation and record and explanation of what God has done for the salvation of man. See, man doesn't save himself. God does that. He goes on to say, the Bible is the revelation of God's gracious purpose towards a world of sinful man. It claims to be such, and the revelation is in its every book. From beginning to end, we see that that's true. And so the conclusion that we come to here is that those who are to obtain 
these spiritual blessings do so for no other reason than that God the Father chose them from the very beginning of time and even before that, as we're told, before the foundations. And so that's how it is that you come to be, as a believer, the recipient of God's great blessings. God is the source. He's the source of every blessing we enjoy, every good thing that we have, and it couldn't really be any other way. We've asked kind of a bunch of questions this morning, but really, have you ever wondered about the mystery of how a dead man can come to receive such blessings of God? We read those passages, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sin, and yet... In Ephesians, we're told that those who were once dead are now alive and they've been given every spiritual blessing. That's interesting, right? How does a dead man do that? I mean, he's dead, right? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says that very thing, right? And you were, past tense, dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And so not only were you just dead to everything good and godly and holy, but you were captive by the spirit who was working against God in this world. Isn't it interesting that so many Christians, when you ask them about how it is that they have become a believer, respond in such a way that basically says, I made myself alive again. Well, how can you do that? It's a bit absurd, and we would even laugh at that. It is very interesting because if you were to ask the same question in the physical realm, well, it would sound a bit like this. Do you think the man who's sitting in the morgue can make himself alive again? I know we have zombie movies, but that ridiculousness aside, can a dead man raise himself up? No. You wouldn't even have that conversation with a sane person. And yet, that's the very conversation we have when we speak of being spiritually dead, although in reality, it's no different at all. The spiritually dead man is no more alive than the physically dead man. Yet, with the whole Bible as a testimony to the need for God to intervene on behalf of men, we still have professing believers who refuse to believe what's plain in Scripture. And that's because men want to believe their own ideas contrary to what we see in Scripture. But the man who believes that he can make himself alive is playing God. The man who believes he is the beginning force to his own salvation is assuming the throne of God. And I say we need to be gracious when we consider these truths because if you were to word it that way, I don't know any believer who would say, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. There's some cognitive dissonance. There's misunderstanding, and largely it comes from the fact that when we come to difficult passages like this in Scripture, the majority of Christians in our day and age just simply skip over it. 
Just simply ignore it. Just simply pretend that it's not there. We joke and say that folks highlight those passages in the Bible with the black highlighter, the Sharpie. Colossians 2.13 gives us even a little more information about the fact that we were dead in our transgressions. Listen to this. It says, when you were dead in your transgression and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. Not your choice, not your response. This wasn't someone who gave a Billy Graham presentation and walked down the aisle if you want to know Jesus. That wasn't the starting point. This says that you were dead in your transgressions, and he, being God, made you alive together with him, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of degrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he had taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Well, every bit of that points to the work of God, doesn't it? First God the Father, and then God the Son and his work on the cross. And so you read a passage like verse 4, and there are only two possible explanations that any reasonable human being could come to. Just as he chose us. One possible understanding is that God chooses us out of his own will, his own graciousness, granting us grace for his own good pleasure and for his own purposes apart from anything that we can do or will do. That he chooses us despite of who we are, in spite of who we are, not because of who we are. That's one understanding. The second reasonable explanation that someone might consider is that God in his omniscience, in his all-knowingness, in his perfect knowledge, chooses us because somehow he foresaw that we would have faith. And so he chose those who would exercise faith, and he leaves those who would simply have rejected him. There are, those are the only two possible explanations for the passage. There are no others. Well, I think we've already really answered which one of those two it must be. I think here, again, is a good time to remember and recognize just how magnificent and high of a doctrine this is. I certainly am not standing here before you this morning thinking that I can fully grasp the kind and gracious intentions of God Almighty in what he's done for me before the foundations of the earth, and neither can you. And so we have to approach these doctrines with great caution and with great humility. These are difficult for men to understand. And I think the difficulty is clearly tied up in our sinful nature. We want to be the source. We want to be right. And so we come to difficult passages like this, and the majority of Christians decide to become ostriches when they come to this passage. They just merely stick their head in the ground with their backside exposed, and, well, you can imagine what that leads to. And it does. But I don't think there's any greater arrogance, really, than to overlook Scripture simply because we feel it's uncomfortable or too difficult. This is the beauty of preaching through books of the Bible. We don't get to skip what's there. We have to deal with the text. 
we don't always have to understand it fully, and there'll certainly be lots of things that we don't, but we have to acknowledge it as being good and true because it's from God. So we understand that the doctrine of unconditional election is a great mystery, and we have to approach it with the right spirit. And I say spirit, not hermeneutic. Why do I say that? Because it would be all... In all honesty, folks on both sides of the camp often approach this doctrine with a combative nature, with a spirit that just longs to fight and win rather than confronting it as though it's something grand and holy and in humility that's difficult. And so we aren't aiming to just win an intellectual argument to but but to embrace the truths that God's given us and to share those truths with those around us but nonetheless even though it's difficult we have to believe it because it's the word of God right and we if we choose to ignore it like a lot do certainly we can rest assured that we will find ourselves caught up in a lot of heresy and wrong teaching so We've answered that question, which of those two options it is. I think the scripture is quite clear. We have become the recipients of God's great mercy and his rich blessings because he chose us apart from anything we do, could do, or would do. Otherwise, we would remain dead because no dead man can make himself alive again. Well, the next question, and if you've ever had these discussions with someone, you know what the question's going to be. Well, how is that fair? How can God hold me responsible if I can't make the choice myself? How can God hold my friend responsible if he hasn't chosen him? Well, first of all, we don't know who God has and hasn't chosen. And beyond that, we don't know in what time God may have chosen someone. But that's the question, how is it fair? How can God hold man responsible if he's not able to choose? And this discussion always comes up. How can God be just if he sends a man to hell who stays in his sin because it takes an act of God to get him out of it? Well, those are all questions that we hear and are asked. And it's very interesting because it's at that point we would want to go to Scripture and say, okay, what does Scripture, how does Scripture answer that? Well, this is a very interesting doctrine, folks, because the reality is Scripture doesn't answer this one. What do I mean by that? Well, there are so many other places where Paul gives an argument, a reason for an understanding of, he explains it, he dives into it deeply, but... That's not what happens with this doctrine, and if you will, just turn with me to Romans chapter 9 real quick, and let's see what the Apostle Paul's answer is to this very question. Is it God that chooses us, or is it us that initiates that? How do we explain this doctrine to people? So we're going to kind of concentrate on verses about 20 to 23, but I want to read from verse 1 for you just to kind of remind you and give you a little bit of context. So if you'll bear with me, it says this, 
I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple services and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise as regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not yet done anything good or bad, so that God's purposes, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Well, here we come to an answer. What shall we say? So he's just finished speaking of God's sovereignty and choosing whom he'll love and who he won't. And the question comes up. Lost my place here. Give me just a second. The older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You know, it's God's prerogative to choose whom he will choose. So then it does not depend on man. Well, that's a good statement. That's a pretty clear statement, right? So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on whom? God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, we remember Pharaoh, right? For this purpose, I raised you up. God raised up Pharaoh. Why? To demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Would you say, did God raise up Pharaoh so that then he could destroy him? Yes, that that's what it says. It's absolutely what it says. So then he, being God, has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Now you'll recall, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and then what happened after that? God hardened Pharaoh's heart. <coughs> you'll say to me then, why does he find fault. Why does God find fault? And this is the very question when we get to our text this morning that many ask, if it's God that chooses you, then how is it that he finds fault with anyone else? And this is meant to be an argument against God's good election. Well, here's the answer. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? 
He doesn't explain this grand doctrine. He doesn't give a reason or an argument like he does many other doctrines. He just simply says, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Well, he goes on, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? That's quite the statement. This is the Holy Spirit responding to the question of why God elects whom he elects, why he chooses who he chooses, why he saves who he saves. And the answer isn't, here's a long explanation. It's, who do you think you are? to question a holy God. That's the answer. That's the answer. Well, he goes on, Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. So God chooses who he has mercy on and whom he doesn't. And then it goes on, and it ties so beautifully into our passage. When did he make all these choices? He says, which he prepared beforehand for glory, for his glory. I mean, that's quite the reply. That's quite the reply. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? In other words, Paul's saying, do you realize to whom it is you're speaking? Do you realize whom it is that you're questioning? So we have to understand that when we approach these doctrines, we are approaching God Almighty as his creatures, made by him and we need to know our right place. And lest we want to argue with it, he says, or does not the potter have the right over the clay? Does not God who made us have right over us? Of course, the implied answer is yes, and he alone has that right. And so men question God because they believe that they are God's equal. We question God because we've forgotten that God is holy and that we are his creation. I think also understanding this for the believer ought to cause him to be the most gracious, loving, kind person you could find because you realize that you did nothing to deserve these spiritual blessings God's giving you. You weren't special or better in the sense that the people around you are less than you know. You didn't contribute to what God's given you in any way. God, in his mercy, looked at you and chose to save you. That should make us the people who value our salvation more than any other. God's clearly given us minds and reasons that we just try to wrestle with these truths, but here the Apostle Paul reminds us that our place 
is that of a creature and that God is above our station and that it was for his good pleasure that he chooses to do the way he does. God has the right, and so he says, who are you, O man? Well, this isn't the only place that God responds this way to a man, is it? We probably are tired of hearing me talk about Job, the book of Job, but it is such a glorious book because it gives us insight into things that no other place in Scripture does. If you want, you can turn to chapter 38 or you can just recall that, write it down and look it up later. But if you'll remember in chapter 38 of Job, this is where he's confronted with the very same reality that we're confronted with this morning in this doctrine of election and particularly God's sovereignty. God elects whom he wills and we have no answer for why it is. We can't fully understand it. We are just simply told to believe because it is the very word of God. Well, listen to God's response to Job. In fact, as you listen to it, just imagine if you would like to be responded to by God in this way. God looks at Job and he says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? I'm done. Right there. Dead on my face. And Job was too. God says this to Job in verse 2. In verse 12, as he continues, God asks Job another question. He says, have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? What a question. Talk about being put in your right station. Have you ever commanded the morning? In verse 18, he says, have you Job understood the expanse of the earth. In verse 33, he says, Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Or do you fix their rule over the earth? Pretty heavy statements. Of course, the implied answer is no. Job has no idea what he's talking about. Job has but a minuscule, tiny human mind incapable of comprehending these mysteries of God and this morning we approach another mystery of God which that is true for us how could we understand God's grand design in whom he chooses and who he does not we can't so the applied answer is no in chapter 40 after he goes all the way through two other chapters of God just hammering down the reality of who he is to Job. In 40, God reveals the very heart of all men when he says to Job, will a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Well, that's really the crux of the matter there. When we question God and his sovereign and unconditional election, who will find fault with God the Almighty? God goes on to say, let him who reproves God answer it. What do you think Job reproved God? No, of course not. But can you imagine the God of the universe speaking out of the heavens to a man who insists that something isn't fair because God 
has elected this one and not that one. God says, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? I'm glad I am not in Job's place. But this is Job's response to that. He's gone through multiple chapters of this. He says, behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Well, that is the response of one who has been made humble. Now, you think that would be the end of it, but it's not. Job responds that way, and God doesn't stop. He continues on for another few chapters. Will you annul my judgment? God asked Job. Will you condemn me that you may be justified? God asked Job. Or do you have an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? And for two more chapters, God displays the depths and the vastness of his understanding and sovereignty. And in the end, Job is left bare with no real answers other than being confronted with the absolute majestic sovereignty of God. So what's the very ending? Chapter 42, Job ends as he says to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand. Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. What a response. What a response. So now we come back to our verse, Ephesians 1, 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And many say, but it isn't fair that God chooses some and not others. And our answer is exactly the same as Job found in Romans. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Of course, this is a hard doctrine for man to receive and perceive apart from God's grace. And even with God's grace, it comes with difficulty. We need to acknowledge that. And yet, we have to say that it's true because God has told us so. And it merely tells us that this God has chosen us, and then it gives no further explanation. But why wouldn't you rejoice in knowing that God chose to lavish his good graces on you for no other reason than his good pleasure. It's a great mystery. It's important to think about that. There are a lot of doctrines that we'll never fully grasp. I mean, who can fully grasp the Trinity, for instance? We know that it's true, but how is it true? How is it that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons and yet they're one? I, I, I don't know. I can't tell you that because the Bible doesn't tell me that. And yet it's true. This is a mystery. 
Or how do we understand the hypostatic union? Right? If you'll remember, that's the fact that God is both, that Jesus, while he walked on earth, is both fully man and fully God. How do we understand that? Well, I can't tell you the answer to that because it's such a great mystery, but I can just tell you that it's true because we see it all throughout Scripture. And so we come to our passage this morning, and we come to see that the very reason you are the recipient of every spiritual blessing is not because you first had faith, not because you first responded to the gospel, not firstly because Christ paid the penalty for your sins. All those things are true, but you're the recipient of these blessings firstly because God chose you before the foundation of the world. And for that, we should rejoice because if it's God's doing, and rather I should say, since it is of God's doing, then that means it can't be undone, right? It can't be undone if it's God's doing. Like Job, we acknowledge that nothing can thwart the plans of God. And so if the plans of God was to choose you before the foundation of the world and to give you every spiritual blessing, then who can take that away from you? Nobody. This is why this is such a grand doctrine for us to understand, because it grants us a peace and a comfort and a joy that you couldn't have any other way. If God's the source of this blessing, the cause of this blessing, then you can't lose it. You can't lose these spiritual blessings. They can't be minimized. They can't be contaminated because they were given by God. You can certainly live without embracing them, but they're always there, accessible to you. There are a lot of other passages in Scripture that tell us, reference this very same doctrine as being true. We're not going to go into them this morning, but because God chose you, you need to know you are his. And no one can take that away. No one can affect or undo what God has done in your life or given you access to. And so as we close this morning, I want you to remember that this really is a difficult mystery. It truly is, but it makes it no less true or sure I also want to say that understanding this doctrine is not an issue of salvation. That is a temptation that many in our camp tend towards. Understanding this doctrine is not an issue of salvation. Now that might be a little shocking, but let me explain that a little. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's it. Simple, childlike faith in the person and work of Christ, trusting in him, receiving the propitiation of your sins, that alone is salvation. And we will struggle with being able to articulate doctrines accurately the rest of our life, but for the one who holds on to the person and work of Christ as his Lord and Savior, is saved. And, and in saying that, let me now say that this is an extremely important doctrine to grasp.
because it has to do with the sovereignty of God. And not only that, but it has to do with how you walk your Christian life. Do you walk in constant fear of losing your salvation or losing your blessing? Or do you walk with a confidence while walking in obedience to Christ, knowing that because he began the good work in you, he'll finish it? There's no greater doctrine than this that can bring comfort to the soul because it tells you that you are what you are by the grace of God alone. And because of that, the Apostle Paul starts in the first with a praise to God. God will finish the good work he began in you because it's not your work, it's his work. This, is your, this doctrine is your greatest security as a believer. From the time you become a believer and you come to understand this to the very end, you'll find that there is nothing else that will comfort you more than understanding God's sovereignty in your life. It was of this doctrine that Charles Spurgeon said, the sovereignty of God is the pillow in which he lays his head at night. And this needs to become the pillow on which you lay your head at night. And so when your life is tough, when things aren't going the way you want them to go, when the government does things that it shouldn't do, when the church is persecuted, when your job fires you, whatever it is, you can always come back to the sovereignty of God and know that because it's God's work in you, he'll finish it. Because God has called you to himself and because God has chosen to bless you with every spiritual blessing, to equip you for good works that that can't be taken away. So let this doctrine be the pillow on which you rest your head at night. Let's pray.